Again, I extend a word of greeting to those of you who may be visiting us with the first time, and also a word of greeting to those of you who are faithfully here week after week. I want to uh, remind you once again, this is very important, that uh, as you have received, you who are members of Covenant Presbyterian Church, as you have received by email, or as you have seen in this week's newsletter, or as you have received or will receive as a letter. Uh, we have a very important uh, congregational meeting that will, be ta- that will take place uh, following morning worship next Sunday morning. Uh, and because of uh, the nature of that meeting and perhaps, therefore, its length, uh, we think it's wise uh, that um, Sunday school not be held next Lord's Day morning uh, so that we can give attention to what is the work of the Lord. Uh, It is not uh, something uh, secular that we will do following worship tomorrow morning. It is, in fact, what we do as uh, faithful members of this particular uh, part uh, of His church. And then next Sunday evening, uh, I hope that you all will make every effort to be here. It is the time for our, usually the joint uh, uh, PCA worship service takes place uh, during Reformation Sunday, uh, but because of Archbishop Arambi's presence in the country and his ability to be here with us next Sunday evening, uh, we will gather here uh, with all the other PCA churches in our area Uh, also invited to attend. There are a few conflicts uh, with some other churches, but we anticipate um, a a significant crowd. So I encourage you to be here, and I encourage you to do something that you don't do. Uh, I encourage you to be here early, and uh, I know you. Uh, I encourage you to be here early, and I encourage you to park as far away from the sanctuary as you are physically capable of parking uh, in order to leave other parking places uh, for our guests uh, as they arrive. Uh, It is a significant moment. Um, Archbishop Barumbi uh, was um, the head of the church in Uganda. He has since uh, stepped down from that position. Uh, He is part of the conservative Anglican movement uh, that has taken a very strong stand Uh, for the gospel uh, and for uh, the teachings of Scripture. I've taken that stand throughout the world, and uh, it was our privilege, some of you will remember, in 2006 uh, to have him, uh, 2007, to have him here, uh, and now once again uh, it will be uh, our privilege to have him return to this pulpit. Uh, So I encourage you, again I encourage you, Uh, to make every effort to be with us uh, next Sunday evening. Um, People wanting to sing in the choir, show up when, Jeremy? 4.45, those who would like to sing in what we anticipate will be a choir, perhaps, uh, that will test the limits of our space up here. Uh, We encourage you uh, to be here at 4.45. Open your Bibles, please, to Haggai chapter 1. Haggai, the first chapter. Just by quick introduction, I'll make this even clearer, I hope, in just a few moments 
It's the year 520 B.C. A handful of Jews, some 50,000, have come back from the Babylonian captivity. They returned some 16 or 17 years earlier. They returned for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. But for the past 16, 17 years, no progress on that construction has taken place. This is the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, that would be around the year 520 B.C., in the second year of Darius the king, Darius the king of Persia, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Take note as we read how many times the Lord will be described as the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord all-powerful, the Lord who rules over all the hosts of heaven and of earth. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now consider there. Now therefore, says the, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does, not, uh, does so to put them in a bag with holes." Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel the son of Shatil and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work! For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when, you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, 
declares the Lord of hosts. So why in the world do we spend our time reading ancient history? Because our faith, the revelation given to us by God, is not a philosophy that simply floats in the air. Our God is the God who sovereignly works in history and records for us that history so that we might know that He is indeed the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage of Your Word, open our minds and make us receptive. It's a little strange to us, Father. We weren't there. We're not sure we understand all that's going on here. So by Your grace, help us to gain that understanding. And furthermore, help us to understand why it matters that we understand what is taking place here in this prophecy of Haggai. This past week we remembered 9-11. Thirteen years now after 9-11, new buildings rise on the site where the Twin Towers fell. As the book of Haggai begins, it's been nearly 70 years since the Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar first toured to the ground, uh, toured to the ground, the temple in Jerusalem in 587 B.C. In 605 B.C., the Lord raises up Babylon. The Lord raises up Babylon. The Lord raises up Babylon to punish the people of Judah for breaking covenant with Him. For almost 400 years, the Lord is patient. For almost 400 years, the vast majority have failed to love the Lord as they should and have treated with disdain His holy law. For 18 years, Nebuchadnezzar rules, Babel, uh, rules Judah. But then, when the Jews attempt to rebel against the overlord, their overlord Nebuchadnezzar, he sends his army to plunder the temple of its silver and gold vessels, to, to execute, to put to death Judah's king and noblemen, to march into exile most of the remaining population, and to utterly destroy, I mean to tear to the ground the city and the temple. What a terrible moment. We have spoke at length for many, many months about God's covenant. It appears at this moment as if God's promises to Abraham and to Israel and to David, it appears that those covenants are null and void. Abraham's descendants now no longer live in the promised land, but instead they, they exist as strangers in a foreign land. David's kingdom is no more, and the holy city and the temple lie in ruins. It is an awful moment, and we need to recognize that. It is a confusing, disturbing moment in human history. But as we have talked about so often, God's ways are not our ways. The Lord sits upon His throne. He is the Lord of hosts, as we are reminded over and over again here in these opening words of Haggai. He rules over all. He is the one who raises up rulers and who disposes them. 
And so it is the Lord, in keeping with his sovereign purposes, after those first nearly 70 years, after those first exiles, including Daniel, went in, uh, went, were, were taken away to Babylon, nearly 70 years after those first Jews were exiled to Babylon, the Lord, the Lord, in keeping with his sovereign purposes, in 539, B.C., he disposes of Babylon, and he raises up Persia to rule over the land. Now, interestingly, I mean, stunningly, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it, is, it is so flabbergasting that, that people who deny the supernatural revelation of God insist that Isaiah could never have said what he said, because 160 years earlier, before these people, before the Persians come to power, 160 years before that day, the prophet Isaiah named the future king of Persia. He named Cyrus. And he named Cyrus to be the one who would do the unthinkable. He named Cyrus to be the one who would issue a decree allowing the Jews who so chose to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple. And in 538 B.C., Cyrus, the king of Persia, he issues this, this decree. In, chap in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, this history is told. And in Ezra 1, verses 5 through 7, we're told that everyone whose spirit God stirred up to rebuild the temple, everyone, every one of those exiles living there in Babylon, who the Spirit of God stirred up to want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they set out to do so. And it was, a, you know, it was an arduous task just to make that trek back 500 miles to the land of Judah. But as they leave Babylon to this faithful remnant of 50,000, it's very difficult to know what percentage that might be of the Jews, of all of the Jews living uh, in Babylon. But the very fact that the Scripture repeatedly refers to them as a remnant speaks of the fact that it would have been a very low percentage. 50,000. Remember that when Moses delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, how many did he lead out of Egypt? He led 600,000 men, which means a total population of some two and a half to three million. Now it's a remnant of 50,000 who set out to return. And to this faithful remnant, Cyrus gives the gold. Cyrus returns to them. I mean, how unthinkable is this? Cyrus returns to them the gold and silver vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and placed in the house of his gods. And furthermore, this heathen king supplies these people with other vessels of silver and gold, along with goods and beasts and costly wares and free, and free will offerings given by those who chose to remain in Babylon. So under the leadership of the appointed governor Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua, 
These 50,000 Jews in 537, 536 B.C. make the trek westward to Judah. In 536 B.C., having arrived in Jerusalem, they, they, they erect an altar in accordance with Mosaic law, and they begin to rebuild the temple. Now that brings us to the book of Haggai. Haggai, the date of the book of Haggai is 520 B.C., the temple has not been rebuilt. For 16, perhaps 17 years, nothing more has been accomplished than those initial efforts. I mean, why? Okay, let's think about that. Why? I mean, it's understandable. I mean, they had a lot to do to reestablish themselves in their devastated homeland. I mean, surely that temple project could wait. I mean, it's understandable, isn't it? Well, this is what the Lord says, Haggai 1, verses 2 and 3. Haggai 1, verses 2 and 3. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Instead of working on the temple, they've built homes for themselves, which obviously is, is, is understandable, but they haven't built simple dwellings. They've built elaborate dwellings. They've built houses with paneled walls, which would have, which would have been a tremendous extravagance in that particular culture in the midst of that devastated land. Now, I have a question. Where'd they get the money? I mean, did you pay attention to what we read? Where'd they get the money? I mean, because, I asked that question because in Haggai 1 verses 5 through 6 and again in verses 9 through 11 that I didn't read, what we are told is that the Lord has not allowed them to prosper. I mean, why? Aren't these the faithful few? Aren't these the faithful few who have left Babylon to come back to Jerusalem? I mean, doesn't the Lord repeatedly promise throughout the Old Testament that if His people walk in His ways, He will prosper them? Didn't Jesus teach that if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, He will provide all that we need? Didn't Jesus promise? Didn't Jesus teach that if we honor Him with our time and our talents and our riches, He will bless us both spiritually and materially? Yes. But He has not allowed the faithful few who left Babylon to come back to Judah. He has not allowed the faithful few now living in Jerusalem to prosper. Why? Because they haven't been faithful. They haven't been faithful. Again, I ask, and forgive me, I know this is, some, this is somewhat of a conjecture, but again, I ask, where did they get the money, these people who have not prospered for 16 years? Where did they get the money to build paneled houses? Well, I can't be sure of what I'm about to say, so maybe I should step out of the pulpit. But where did they get the money? Think of the wealth that was given to them when they left Babylon. Wealth that was given to them to rebuild the temple. Where else would they have gotten the money? Where else would they have gotten the money? The Lord has not allowed them to prosper. Where else would they have gotten the money to build paneled 
houses. That money was given to rebuild the temple. The faithful few who returned to Judah, they have forgotten why the Lord allowed them to return. There's also a second problem. They face a second problem. Having returned to Judah, they find themselves surrounded by other people who hate them. That's nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. That's still going on in that part of the world. And despite of their enemies, and I should say, in spite their enemies, write to the king of Persia to challenge the idea that any king of Persia would have issued a decree allowing a people like the Jews to rebuild their temple. Surely this can't be true. Well, the wheels of government turn slowly. There's nothing new under the sun. The wheels of government turn slowly, but eventually it's discovered. Cyrus's cylinder in which he wrote the decree is discovered, which did give the Jews permission not only to build, but also to provide for them the money they needed to build. And now, added to this report coming back from the Persian court, the new king, Darius, he orders the Jews' neighbors to supply whatever additional money might be needed to complete the rebuilding of the temple. He is the Lord of hosts. The silver and the gold are mine. The riches of the peoples will come to this temple. But for internal and external reasons, construction on the temple ceased for 16 years. But now the Lord raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who call upon the people to do what the Lord sent them back to Jerusalem to do, to rebuild the temple. In chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord assures them. Look at that. Isn't this gracious? I mean, it's the, it's the words of covenant. Chapter 1, verse 13, the Lord assures them, I am with you. And then in verse 14, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord stirs up the leaders and the people to resume rebuilding the temple. Now, here's the question for us. Why is that so important? Why in the world is it so important that they rebuild the temple? Well, because in that economy, in that historical moment, the temple symbolized the Lord's presence in the midst of His people. I mean, obviously, as Solomon acknowledged 400 years earlier during the dedication of the first temple, the Lord cannot be confined to any temple. Not even all of the, not even all of the heavens can, can contain Him. And yet God graciously provided for His people a physical structure to remind them that He dwells in their midst. And you'll remember those occasions in the Old Testament Scripture when, when the glory cloud of the Lord filled the temple and blazed forth from both the temple and earlier from the tabernacle. The Lord is in our midst. Temple was rebuilt as a visible reminder that God still dwells in the midst of His people, that these are my people, I am their God. But furthermore, the rebuilt temple 
was to serve as a visible testimony to the fact that God keeps and will fulfills and will fulfill his covenant promises to his people. In the middle of chapter 2, Haggai chapter 2, verse 4, look at what the Lord says. The Lord says to them, work, for I am with you. I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you. When you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. And these poor people, these dear people, they needed reassuring. Don't you sometimes need reassuring? They needed reassuring. They have no king. Now think about this. Just, just walk, walk your way through this with me. And I'm sorry if this gets a little dense, but just walk with me through this. They have no king. There is no Ark of the Covenant. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Surely if the Ark of the Covenant had been brought back, had been preserved, we would have been told. There is no Ark of the Covenant, no matter what Indiana Jones may think. There is no Ark of the Covenant. There is no mercy seat atop the Ark. There's no mercy seat atop the Ark. What does that mean? I mean, without an ark, without a mercy seat, those of you who have some understanding of the Old Testament, without an ark, without a mercy seat, there is nowhere to pour out the substitutionary blood on the Day of Atonement that would assure the people of the forgiveness of their sins. Think about that. Think about that. It's like, you know, we have symbols. We have a symbol of a cross. Remove all the symbols of the crosses. We have crosses everywhere. Remove the symbol of the cross. Wipe out from our mind, from our understanding, the cross. And where's the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins? They have no ark. There is no mercy seat. There is nowhere to pour out the blood. There is no way to have that final assurance of the forgiveness of sin. Which is why, look at verse, chapter 2, verse 3, which is why it's understandable that as some of the older people who could remember Solomon's temple, as they see this new temple being built, they weep. I mean, it's not nearly as impressive as Solomon's temple, and yes, there's a holy of holies, but it's empty. It's empty. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. As the people weep, Haggai tells them, the Lord, I should say, tells the people through Haggai. He tells them, I'm going to fill this house with my glory. Already the Lord, already we're told here in these verses that the Lord has provided for them the riches of other nations with which to rebuild. And this structure that you are rebuilding over which some of you weep, I'm going to fill it with glory. But I'm going to do even greater than that. Look at verse 8. He tells them, not only am I going to fill the temple with glory, look at verse 8. The glory of this house will be greater than that of Solomon's temple. It will be in this place that I will grant you peace. Now think about, that's around the year 520, 519, 518 B.C. 
And even as the temple is completed and finally it stands there, I want you to just, I want you to relate to these people. I want you to think about how is the generations, and how many generations are there between 520 B.C. and the coming of Christ 500 years later? As the generations pass, how hard it must have been for these people to take at face value the Lord's promises. I mean, for most of those 550 years, they're ruled by foreign powers. Now, in the late first century B.C., a non-Jew, a non-Jew named Herod, he will radically expand the temple, and he'll create an architectural wonder that will be admired throughout the Roman Empire. But that Holy of Holies, it's still empty. It's still empty. It's still empty. There's no Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. And furthermore, throughout all of those 500 years, no descendant of David reigns as king. But then, in the days of Herod, a child is born to a virgin. In John chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that the Word became flesh. The Word of the Lord became flesh and, he, and dwelt among us. And literally, literally, those words read, the Word became flesh and was tabernacled was tabernacled among us. That child Jesus becomes a man. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, speaking of himself, he tells the religious leaders of Judea, he turns to the religious leaders of Judea, this man, Jesus, turns to the religious leaders of Judah, and he says, something greater than the temple is here. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus tells the people, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And we're told by way of commentary, two verses later, he was speaking about the temple of his body. As the Lord promised, as we've read here in Haggai, as the Lord promised to be with the people of Haggai's day. What was the name that Isaiah gave to that child born of a virgin? And he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In that rebuilt temple, in that rebuilt temple, in that temple expanded radically and made glorious by this non-Jew Herod. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no mercy seat. 
and therefore there is no day of atonement. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, this is what we are told. We are told that when Christ appeared as our high priest, he entered once for all into the holy place, not the holy place here on earth, the holy place of heaven. He entered into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of, of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, which he poured out in redemption for our sins, that we might know ourselves forgiven in the final day of atonement. The perfect high priest, his blood poured out upon the true ark of the covenant, upon the true mercy seat of heaven. Now listen to me. The rebuilt temple anticipates the coming of Jesus because Jesus, Jesus, listen to me, Jesus is the true temple of God. He is the true temple. He is the one in whom God perfectly dwells for he is in fact the God-man. And he is the perfect and final high priest who pours out his blood upon the heavenly mercy seat atop the ark of the covenant so that by grace through faith in him as Savior, Lord, and King, we might know our sins forgiven and we might know. How did God dwell in that temple? By his Spirit. You do a word study, the Spirit of God, the cloud of God, the glory of God, they all get tied up together in the Old Testament Scriptures. So here is Jesus, and he offers himself up so that we might know our sins forgiven, so that we might know, he tells us, that my Spirit, the Holy Spirit, he dwells within you. He dwells within you. What does that mean? Think about the Old Testament. You gotta think of all these things in the light of the, I know you're tired of that, but it's the truth. What does it mean, the Spirit of God dwells in you? The God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, He dwells within you as He once dwelt in the temple because the Scripture repeatedly tells us that by grace through faith we are in Christ and He is in us. And who is this Christ? He is the temple. And He is in us because what does the Scripture teach? You are the temple of the living God. That temple built in 520 to 516 B.C., it anticipates the coming of the temple, Jesus, who says to us, I am with you. I dwell within you. I am the perfect and final temple of God. And now because I dwell within you and because you dwell in me. Well, just listen, listen. This is what the believers at Corinth are told. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. The believers at Corinth are asked a question. Listen to the question. 
Do you know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Ephesian believers, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, they're told in Ephesians 2 verses 19 through 21, you, you are members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure upon which this whole structure is being joined together so that it might grow into what? So that it might grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we're told, you yourselves, you, you, you. I saw a video of myself the other day uh, participating in the, uh, uh, the commencement exercises at Covenant College. I look a little scary, don't I? I mean, I, I, kind of, I kind of scared myself. I'm, I'm trying to smile more, okay? Okay. All right. That was a disturbing video, by the way. It was just disturbing. But what are we being told? Peter tells us, you yourselves, the like living stones, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Believer, you are now the temple of the Lord. What does that mean? That means that you now serve as the visible testimony of the Lord's presence in this world. It means it is, in, it is in and through you that He has ordained that His glory be visibly displayed for others to see. You are the temple of the Lord. You are the temple of the Lord. You are to blaze with His glory. For he commissions you to serve as the light of the world. He commissions you to serve. He commands you to serve. He doesn't say, I would like you to be the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. So that others seeing your character, others seeing your good works, others hearing your good words, they might be drawn to that light, to his glory shining in and through you, and that they might be stirred up to give all honor and praise to our Father in heaven. Think about who we are. The Lord has placed us here as what? He has placed us here as strangers living in a foreign land, in a land that does not acknowledge Him, in a land that openly lives in defiance, in disdain of His Word. But we are the temple of the Lord. We are the temple of the Lord. In us dwells the Holy Spirit equipping, enabling, empowering us to help expand, to help us do what? To help us do what? To help us do what? To help us expand and to extend the walls of His temple 
until he comes again. By God's grace, may we understand who we are and whose we are. May he stir us up each day to understand I'm the temple of the Lord today, this day. May God's glory blaze through me. May my character, may my action, may my words display the glory of God to those around me so that he might use us, so that he might work in and through us to enlarge his temple in a land devastated by the darkness of sin. May we, as his people, may we understand we are the temple of the Lord. And may his glory blaze forth from us. Let's pray.